This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christiane Levesque, New Brunswick. The Spinster Book by Myrtle Reed. Chapter 7 An Inquiry into Marriage. Marriage appears to be somewhat like a grape. People swallow a great deal of indifferent good for the sake of the lurking bit of sweetness and never know until it is too late whether the venture was wise. Chaucer compared it to a crowded church. Those left on the outside are eager to get in, and those caught inside are straining every nerve to get out. There are many in this year of grace who have safely made their escape, but unfortunately the happy ones inside say little about it and do not seem anxious to get out. Fate takes great pleasure in confusing the inquiring spinster. Some of the disappointed ones will advise her never to attempt it, and in the voluble justification which follows, she sees clearly that the discord was not entirely caused by the other. Her friends, who have been married a year or so, regard her with evident pity, and occasionally suggest, delicately enough to be sure, that she could never have had a proposal. Among her married friends, who are more mature, there is usually one who chooses her for a confidant. This consistent lady will sob her unhappiness on the girl's shoulder, and the next week ask her why she doesn't get married. Sometimes she invites the girl to her house to meet some new and attractive man, with the memory of those bitter tears still in her heart. A girl often loses a friend by heartily endorsing the things the weeper says of her husband. The fact that he is an inconsiderate brute is frequently confided to the kindly surface of a clean waist-shirt, regardless of laundry bills. The girl remarks dispassionately that she has noticed it, that he never considers the happiness of his wife, and she doesn't see how the tearful one stands it. Behold the instant and painful transformation! It is very hard to be a popular spinster when one has many married friends. That interesting pessimist, Herr Arthur Schopenhauer, advocates universal polygamy upon the theory that all women would thus be supported. To the unprejudiced observer who reads the comic papers and goes to afternoon receptions, it would seem that each woman should have several husbands to pay her bills and see that she is suitably escorted to various social affairs. If a woman had seven husbands, for instance, it is possible that some of them would be willing to take her out whenever she wanted to go. If she yearned for a sealskin coat or a diamond pin and no one of them was equal to the occasion, a collection could be taken up. Two or three might contribute to the good cause and be so beautifully rewarded with smiles and favorite dishes that the remainder of the husbands would be inspired to do something in the same line. At least five of them could go out every night in the week. The matter could be arranged according to a simple system of rotation, or they might draw lots. There could be a club-room in the house where they might smoke without affecting the curtains and madam's temper. Politics and poker make more widows than war, but no woman would find it in her heart to object to the innocent pastime under such happy circumstances, because she would be deprived of nothing not even her husband's society. Six of them might play, while the other read to their wife, and those who won could buy some lovely new china for the house. The sweetness of the lady of their several hearts would be increased sevenfold, while her frowns would be equally divided among them. There would be a large and enviable freedom accorded every one. There would always be enough at home, so dinner need not wait, and madam would be spared one great annoyance. If the servants left suddenly, 
as is not unusual, there would be men enough to cook a dinner Epicurus might envy, each one using his own chafing-dish. Men make better cooks than women because they put so much more feeling into it. The spirit of gentle rivalry, which would thus be developed, is well worth considering. Some one of the seven would always be a lover. To sustain the old relation continuously after marriage undoubtedly requires gifts of tact and temperament which are not often vouchsafed to men, and this would not prove so irksome if the tender obligation were shared. Marriage would no longer be the cold potato of love. Different men always admire different qualities of the same woman, and the beauty of the much-married lady would be developed far beyond that of her who only had one husband, because a recognized virtue is stimulated. If a man admires a woman's teeth, she gets new kinds of dentifrice, and constantly endeavors to add to their whiteness. If he speaks approvingly of her hair, various tonics are purchased. If he alludes to her mellow voice, she tries conscientiously to make it more beautiful still. There is a suspected, but not verified, relation between a man's affection and his digestion. With this ideal method of marriage in force, the dyspeptics could go off by themselves until they felt better, and not be bothered with tender inquiries concerning their health. If the latch-key unaccountably refused to work at two o'clock in the morning, some other member of the husband could always assist the absent ones in, and Madame would never know how many were late. The financial burden would indeed be light. The household expenses might be divided equally, and relieving the wife's necessities would be the happiness of all. One might assume the responsibility of her gowns, another of her hats and gloves, another might keep her supplied with bonbons, matinee tickets, flowers, and silk stockings, another might attend to her jackets and her club dues, her jewels might be the care of another, and so on. It would be the joy of all to see their peerless wife well-dressed, and when she wanted anything in particular, she need only smile sweetly upon the one whose happy lot it was to have charge of that department of expense. There would be no friction, no discord. Madame would be blissfully content, and men have claimed for years that they could live together much more amicably than women, and that they never quarrel among themselves, save in rare instances. This, they say, is because they are so liberal in their views, but a great many men are so broad-minded that it makes their heads flat. It is strange that this happy form of polygamy did not occur to Herr Schopenhauer. It might be because he is a pessimist, and a man. The most nervous time of a man's life is the day of his wedding. The bachelors and the benedicts give different reasons for this when they are gently approached upon the subject. But the majority admit, with lovable and refreshing conceit, that it is because of their innate modesty and their aversion to conspicuous prominence. If this is truly the reason, the widespread fear may be much lessened, for in the grand matrimonial pageant the man is the most obscure member of the procession. People are not apt to think of him at all until the ceremony is over and the girl has a new name. What he wears is of no consequence, and he has no wedding gifts, though he may be remembered for a moment if he gives a diamond star to the bride. Yet it is this ceremony which changes him from a vassal to a king. Before marriage he is a low and useless trump, but afterwards he is ace-high in the game. A latter-day philosopher has beautifully likened marriage to a trip downtown. 
a man leaves the house in the morning his mind already active concerning the affairs of the day his newspaper is in his pocket he has plenty of time to reach the office and his breakfast has begun to assimilate suddenly he sees a yellow speck on the horizon he calculates the distance to the corner and quickens his pace his eyes nobly fixed meanwhile upon the goal of his ambition anxiety develops then fear at last he surrenders all dignity and gallops madly towards the approaching car with his coat-tails spread to the morning breeze and tears in his eyes out of breath but triumphant he swings on just as farther pursuit seemed well-nigh hopeless does he stop to chat cheerily with a conductor does he dwell upon the luxurious aspect of his conveyance does the comfort which he has just secured fill his heart with gladness does the plush covering of the seat appeal to his aesthetic sense no mere woman may ever hope to know for he grudgingly gives the conductor five pennies one of them badly battered and the date beaten out of it and devotes himself to his paper the thing which appears unattainable is ever desired by man a girl who wears an engagement ring upon her finger has a charm for which the unattached sigh in vain the masculine mental process in such a case briefly summarized is something like this one wonder who that girl is over there red hair and quite a bit of style never cared much for red hair suppose she's got freckles too now she's coming this way why there's a solitaire on her finger she's engaged well he can have her i won't cut him out wonder who she is two really she ain't so bad i've seen worse she knows how to dress and she hasn't so many freckles brown eyes that means temper when associated with red hair must be quite a little trick to tame a girl like that she doesn't look as though she were quite subdued three he probably doesn't know how to manage her i could train her all right i wouldn't mind doing it i haven't anything much on hand in the girl line so that's the cat she's engaged to poor little girl Four. i feel sorry for that girl i honestly do she's throwing herself away she can't love that fellow she'll get over it when she's married and be miserable for all the rest of her life i suppose i ought to save her from him i think i'll talk to her about it but it will have to be done cautiously five fine young woman that broad-minded bright vivacious and not half bad to look at seemed to take my advice in good part those great deep brown eyes are pathetic that's the kind of a girl to be shielded and guarded from all the hard knocks in the world six the more i see of that girl the more i think of her those frenchy touches of dress and that superb red hair makes her beautiful i always did like red hair honestly i think she's the prettiest girl i ever saw and her womanliness matches her beauty any man might be proud of winning a girl like that seven the irony of fate the one soul in all the universe that is deep enough to comprehend mine the peerless queen of womankind she for whom i waited all my life is pledged to another i shall go mad if i bear this any longer i simply must have her all is fair in love and war i'll go ask her when one man alludes to another as 
a confidence man it is no distinguishing mark for they instinctively adopt gold brick tactics when seeking woman in marriage those exquisite hands shall never perform a single menial task yet after marriage her ladyship finds that she is expected to be a cook nurse housekeeper seamstress chambermaid waitress and practical plumber this is an unconscious tribute to the versatility of woman since a man thinks he does well if he is a specialist in any one line her slightest wish shall be his law yet not only are wishes of no avail but even pleading and prayer fall upon deaf ears it will be his delight to see that she wants for nothing yet she is reduced to the necessity of asking for money even for carfare and a man will do for his bicycle what his wife would ask in vain many of the matrimonial infelicities of which both men and women bitterly complain may be traced to the gold-brick delusion a woman marries in the hope of having a lover and discovers too late that she merely has a boarder who is most difficult to please there is a certain pitiful change which comes with marriage the sound of her voice would thrill him to his fingertips the touch of her hand make his throat ache and the light in her eyes set the blood to singing in his veins with possession ecstasy changes to content and the loving woman dreaming that she may again find what she has so strangely lost tries to waken the old feeling by pathetic little ways which women read at once but men never know anything about in a way woman is to blame but not so much her superior insight should give her a better understanding of courtship a man may mean what he says at the time he says it but men and seasons change the happiness of the after years depends largely upon her sense of value and proportion no woman of artistic judgment would crowd her room with bric-a-brac even though comfort were not lacking pictures hung together so closely that the frames touch lose beauty space has a distinct value and solid colors judiciously used create a harmony impossible to obtain by the continuous use of figured fabrics yet many a woman whose house is a model of taste whose rooms are spacious and restful insist upon crowding her marriage with the bric-a-brac of violent affection she is not content with undecorated spaces with interludes of friendship and the appreciation which is felt rather than spoken she demands the constant assurances the unfailing devotions of the lover and thus loses her atmosphere and her content it seems to be a settled thing that men shall do the courting before marriage and women afterward nobody writes articles on how to make a wife happy and the innumerable cook-books like an army of grasshoppers consume and devastate the land if women did not demand so much men in general would be more thoughtful if it were understood that even after marriage man was still to be the lover the one who sent roses to his sweetheart would sometimes bring them to his wife the pretty courtesies would not so often be forgotten if the tender thought were in some way shown and the loving word which leaps to the lips were never forced back but always spoken marriage and even life itself would take on new beauty and charm if a woman has daily evidence of a man's devotion no matter in how small a way her hunger and thirst for love are bountifully assuaged misunderstandings rapidly grow into coldness and neglect and foolish woman blind with love adopts retribution and recrimination as her weapons 
There are a great many men who love their wives simply because they know that they would be scalped if they didn't. Making an issue of a little thing is one of the surest ways to spoil happiness. One's personal pride is felt to be vitally injured by surrender. But there is no quality of human nature so nearly royal as the ability to yield gracefully. It shows small confidence in one's own nature to fear that compromise lessens self-control. To consider constantly the comfort and happiness of another is not a sign of weakness, but of strength. Too many men and women are only spoiled children at heart. The little maid of five or six takes her doll and goes home because her playmate has been unkind. Twenty years later she packs her trunk and goes to her mother's because of some quarrel which had an equally childish beginning. But the hurts of the after years are not so easily healed. The children kiss and make up no later than the next day, but grown to manhood and womanhood, they consider it far beneath their dignity and importance to say, Forgive me, and thus proceed to the matrimonial garbage box by way of the divorce court. Lovers are wont to consider a marriage license a free ticket to paradise. Sometimes happiness may be freely given by the dispenser of earthly blessings, but it is more often bought. It is a matter of temperament rather than circumstance, and is to be had only by the two who work for it together, forgiving, forgetting, graciously yielding, and looking forward to the perfect understanding which will surely come. Matches are not all made in heaven. Even the parlor variety sometimes smell of brimstone, and Cupid is blamed for many which are made by cupidity. The gossips and the busybodies would die of malnutrition were it not for marriage and its complications. Two people who have quarreled cheerfully before marriage, and whose engagement has been broken three or four times, often surprise the tabbies, who prophesy misfortune, by settling down into post-nuptial content. Two who are universally pronounced to be perfectly suited to each other, are soon absolutely miserable. Marriage is the one thing which everyone knows more about than the people who are intimately concerned. We hear a great deal of unequal marriages, not merely in degree of fortune, but in taste and mental equipment. A man steeped to his fingertips in the lore of the ancients chooses a pretty butterfly who does not know the difference between a hieroglyph and a Greek verb, and to whom Rome and Carthage are empty names. His friends predict misery and wonder at his blindness in passing by the young woman of equal outward charm, who delivered a scholarly thesis at her commencement, and has a degree of Master of Arts. A talented woman marries a man without proportionate gifts, and the tabbies call a special session. It is decided at this conclave that she is throwing herself away and will regret it. To everyone's surprise, she is occasionally very happy with the man she has chosen, though about some things of no particular importance she knows much more than he. The law of compensation is as certain in its action as that of gravitation, though it is not so widely understood. Nature demands balance and equality. She is constantly chiseling at the mountains to lower to the level of the plain, and welding heterogeneous elements into homogeneous groups. The pretty butterfly may easily prove a balance wheel for the man of much wisdom. She will add a vivid human interest to his abstract pursuits, and keep him from growing narrow-minded. He chose the element he needed to make him symmetrical, with the certain instinct which impels isolated atoms of hydrogen and oxygen to combine in the proportion of two to one. It never occurs to the tabbies that no talent or facility can ever stifle a woman's nature. 
the simple need of her heart is never taken into account in the criticism of these marriages which are deemed unequal if a woman holds an assistant professorship of mathematics in a university it is a foregone conclusion that she should fall in love with someone who is proficient in trigonometry and holds his tangents and cosines in high esteem happy evenings could then be spent with a book of logarithms and sheets of paper specially cut to accommodate a problem similarity of tastes may sometimes prove an attraction but very seldom similarity of pursuit musicians do not often intermarry and the artists and writers are more apt to choose each other than the exponents of their own cult it is not surprising if a man who is passionately fond of music falls in love with a woman who has a magnificent voice or a power which amounts to magic over the strings of her violin appreciation is as essential to happiness as accomplishment and when the two are balanced in marriage comradeship is inevitable an artist marries a woman who does not understand his pictures but if she had not appreciated him in ways more vital to his happiness there would have been no marriage it is pathetic to see what marriage sometimes is compared to what it might be to see it degraded to the level of a business transaction when it was meant to be infinitely above the sordid touch of the dollar and the dime it is a perverted instinct which leads one to marry for money for it will not buy happiness though it may secure an imitation which pleases some people for a little while there is nothing so beautiful as a girl's dream of her marriage and nothing so sad as the same girl if time brings her disillusion instead of the true marriage which is a mutual concord and agreement of souls a harmony in which discord is not even imagined the uniting of two mornings that hope to reach the night together the world is full of pain and danger for those who face it alone and home that sanctuary where one may find strength and new courage must be built upon a foundation of mutual helpfulness and trust no one can make a home alone it needs a man's strong hands a woman's tender hands and two true hearts the light which shines upon the bridal altar is either the white flame of eternal devotion or the sacrificial fire which preys hungrily upon someone's disappointment and someone's broken heart but to the other rout of the cynic the dream which led the two souls thither sometimes becomes divinely true marriage is said to be sufficient career for any woman and it is equally true of men like emerson's vision of friendship it is fit not only for serene days and pleasant rambles but for all passages of life and death it is to make one the stronger because one does not have to go alone it is to make one's joy the sweeter because it is shared it is to take the sting away from the grief because it is divided and the dear comfort of the other's love lies forever around the sore and the doubting heart it is to be the light in the darkness the belief in the distressed the never-failing source of consolation it is to be the gentlest of forgiveness for all of one's mistakes strength and tenderness passion and purity the fire and the snow it is to make one generous to all the world with one's sympathy and compassion because in the sanctuary there is no lack of love it is the joining together of two souls for life to strengthen each other in all peril to rest on each other in all sorrow to minister to each other in all pain 
to be one with each other in silent, unspeakable memories at the moment of the last parting. End of chapter 7